Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, just very quickly, I want to say thanks to everybody for their very gracious and kind and compassionate responses to both the G file and last week's solo remnant and to just my general life circumstance. Um, I am not going to dwell on any of that today because I don't want to. And um, and it is probably for the best for everybody. Also, we don't want me to get a reputation as a, for what William F. Buckley would call excessive lachrymosity. <laughs> so uh, instead, I figured I got to catch up on the stuff I missed and what's going on because next week is election day and we're seven days away from election day. We're recording this Tuesday morning. I'm doing a whole bunch of CNN stuff of election coverage Tuesday morning through Thursday morning at least. Uh, you can find me there. And so I feel like I got to get more up to speed. And I knew that no one would be more gentle um, with my sensitivities than my good friend, uh, Christopher Seierwalt. And so he is back. This may be the fastest turnaround repeat return appearance in remnant history. We'd ha- we have to go to the record books. We have to go to the almanac of remnant statistics for this. But uh, you were on like three weeks ago or something like that. I think early days there may have been some really, really fast turnarounds as the as the remnant was was taking shape back. We'll have to consult the Book of Kells. Uh, yes. But uh, it is a, definitely a pleasure to be with you. I am f- having the same feeling that you're feeling, which is election day is the kind of thing where you – I've been thinking about we I've been thinking about it for 2 years basically that this day would come but the Tuesday before when it's only 7 days you're like I can't possibly be ready to do this and I have to go out to Chicago for News Nation uh and be out there for 4 or 5 days uh so I also have to get the rest of my life in order so that I can leave town and go do all that so hopefully this skull session will help both of us excellent yeah so it's funny. I mean, again, you are much more of a cephologist. Mild to medium cephology. An ointment from my doctor will clear it right up. And, and for those of you who don't know, cephology is the study of elections. It goes back to ancient Greece. Ceph is short Greek for stone, and they would count stones because those were the ballots back in the old days. A little bit like the the the, the uh, Night's Watch Game of Thrones elections, but different. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> But like I always think when at this time of year, because for everybody who does any of this kind of stuff, even remotely, I mean, um, I always think of that episode of The Sopranos where uh, it's the it's the football playoffs and all the bookie parlors are going nuts, you know, crazy busy. And 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 Tony Soprano turns to his wife and says, Carm, you know, this is my busy season. <laughs> <laughs> like he's an accountant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I love it. Uh, let's start with some big picture stuff. Um 
like uh, a Caravaggio or a Manet, you know, really big, you know, I don't, I don't know, is Caravaggio, you and a painter? I'm, I'm sorry. I believe, I believe that is correct. Yes, sir. I think that's right. Yeah. I, I think of big, bold Italian painters and, and that's I think it might be either that or it's a kind of red wine from Tuscany. Either way. It's entirely possible. It's okay. <laughs> so, uh, f- you know, f- floor wax and a dessert topping. Okay. So big picture. Uh, how do things look seven days out? One of the broken ways in which we talk about politics. Um, let's, let's go back to September. And of course, I forget who it was. I, I want to say it was Jonathan Capehart, but it was in the category of Jonathan Capehart writing a piece for the Washington Post who said, hey, wait a minute, maybe Democrats will actually hold the House. And I was like, oh, that is adorable. <laughs> and you do, because they always do it. And it's not just Democrats who do it. Republicans said it in 2018. Republicans said it in 2006 um, because it is projecting a trend line into the future at a steady pace, which is look at the ground the Democrats have gained back. My gosh, if this keeps up until November, they'll, they'll keep the House. But what was really happening in September and the, uh, the Ted Lasso episode uh, was called uh, The Hope That Kills You. Um, what happened in September was Democratic hopes uh, soared because not because they were persuading voters to vote for them, but because Democrats were coming home. Joe Biden's uh, speech at Dracula's Castle uh, had the intended effect. Uh, his uh, dubious, legally dubious uh, effort to uh, forgive student loan debt had the desired effect. Um, and other things that he did had these desired effects because, and so, by the way, did uh, the Supreme Court decision in the Dobbs case, had the effect of having Democrats who were prepared to sit out the election or said they were prepared to sit out the election come home, right? So you're a a bold progressive, uh, you're a Ruben uh, Gallego voter uh, in uh, the center of Phoenix, you are a, a Marsha Fudge voter uh, in Cleveland. You are a, no, you're a former Kucinich voter from Cleveland. You're a bold progressive. And you look at your Democratic candidates and you look at Joe Biden and you say, this party sold us out, man. Uh, they don't, they're not doing the things that they want. They're, they're, they haven't opened the border. He said the pandemic's over. It, I'm just, they haven't, they, they don't care about the climate. And I hate these guys. And I'm not going to go vote for Tim Ryan and I'm not going to go vote for Mark Kelly because who cares? So in September, the Democrats all came home. But again, this wasn't persuasion. The Republican enthusiasm at the beginning was stratospheric. They had lost the last election. Uh, Many of them didn't even believe that they had lost the last election. And they were angry as hornets and ready to vote and have been from beginning to end. Democrats... I mean, you can make a larger, you, you, I won't pull all the way back, but you can, you can think about the wasted year of 2021 where Democrats didn't even tout their greatest accomplishment, which was a bipartisan infrastructure bill that had Republican support and like 75% public approval. They didn't even talk about that because they were so focused on talking about something that was unpopular, which was Bernie Sanders' $7 trillion build back better that ended up with the Joe Manchin wet fizzle. Uh, which is, by the way, a wrestling move in West Virginia. Um, the I thought there was 
Well, it's, it, I thought it was related to the Hoboken Cobbler Squad, um, which is a thing, by the way. Uh, the, I learned the, about this. The Hoboken Cobbler Squad? Uh-huh. So uh, I've been re- my wife and I have been re-watching. Uh, this is vital information for our listeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For I have me, been I need this, yeah. I uh, have been re-watching. There are certain f- things that sound like that that are so dirty, I would never bring them Obviously. up here, but this is okay. Uh, my wife and I are re-watching uh, Better Call Saul, uh-huh. and... Mm. There's a scene where Saul has to go in and convince the cops that it, this far, essentially a pharmacist or something didn't have drugs stolen from him his house, but he in fact had harmless pictures for of him doing something uh, for romantic purposes with a friend. Oh no! And what he was doing was the Hoboken Cobbler Squat, <laughs> which is where, as a naked man, you sit down. And you put your butt in a pie, peach, blueberry, doesn't really matter. And you just rustle around with your tuchus. You make yourself and at home. That's right. You make yourself at home. And uh, uh, that's the. And I was like, there's no way that's real. And I looked it up and it's like, it may have been coined. There are interviews from the showrunner who say it's a thing, but they gave it the name, the Hoboken Cobbler Squat. And I've been trying to figure out a way to introduce it into conversation for quite a while. So you're my first victim. The, the, uh, the, man, anyway, the I, mansion, the mansion wet fizzle uh, uh, would be the same thing, I guess, but with pepperoni rolls. So that's right. They took the, they wasted a year and, and that just speaks to the mistake about the mandate and all those other problems. And that spoke to the disappointment among Democrats and the lack of enthusiasm among Democrats and also reflected in the fact that Democrats were, propping up cuckoo bird candidates in Republican primaries, uh, they did not understand how difficult their situation was. Carrie Lake is on her way to win the governorship of Arizona, a swing state. The governor of Arizona uh, is more likely to be an election denying mega mega super flake in Arizona as a result of uh, Democratic meddling in part. So anyway, that also spoke to their misunderstanding. You get to August and September, voters dial in, and uh, Biden has pandered sufficiently and has, has fear-mongered sufficiently that Democrats are like, okay, we're going to do this. So then it becomes a self-fulfilling thing. The polls are improving, and then people's optimism increases, and then they want to be part of the winning team. What you're seeing now, or what we saw up through last week, it's not that undecided or persuadable voters are lying. It's just that they're going to mostly break in one direction, right? Um, You can look at the suite of Senate races or House races. Governorships function differently. Um, Thank God that there is still some degree of candidate quality over partisanship that matters in America. It just has to get much closer uh, to the the people. They don't care what kind of jerks and weirdos they send to Washington uh, for us to deal with. But at home, they still have some candidate quality concerns, like which explains some of the ticket splitting we're seeing. Right? Exactly. Neither Herschel Walker, uh, well, neither Herschel Walker nor Mehmet Oz uh, nor John Fetterman could get elected governor of their respective states this year. Right? Mm-hmm. They just wouldn't be able to. Raphael Warnock wouldn't be able to. But that's that's on partisanship. But anyway, as you look at let's say the five most important Senate races. Um, or the five most competitive Senate races. Every Senate race is important. Uh, Pennsylvania. uh, We'll say Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, Nevada, Arizona, 
and what am I forget? Georgia. So the five most competitive. And then you could you could push the bubble out. You could talk about North Carolina for the Democrats. You could talk about um, New Hampshire for the Republicans. Uh, I'm even sort of ready to let Wisconsin go off the list because mm-hmm. Mandela Barnes has been a, just a, a bad, uh, th- much like Pennsylvania, Democrats are letting weak Republican candidates get away uh, un- almost untouched uh, with bad candidate selections. But anyway, those states, the toss-up states and the toss-up races are mostly going to go one way, right? They're mostly, 80% of them are going to go one way. And that's how uh, undecided or persuadable voters go at the end. And we've talked about this many times before. You have 80% of the votes or so, 90% of the votes are spoken for before we ever start talking about the election, right? We could, we could, we could allocate 80 or 90% of the votes for 2024 right now if we wanted to. Um, how those, the last tranche of deciders go usually is in mostly one direction. And what happened was Democrats caught up and then as the late deciders started to come through the turnstiles, they're more Republican than Democrat. They're, they're going to vote for Republicans more than they are for Democrats for the same reasons that in midterm elections, the party out of power always succeeds because it ends up being a referendum on the leadership of the party in power. Now, in the last week, and I'm very much reminded of 2016, uh, when we had a, a similarly unsettled electorate where you had two very unpopular parties and you had a lot of bad candidates where there's a lot of, there's still a lot of play in the ball, right? There's still a lot of bounce in this thing. And I would, the way I would think about it is, and you can read it with your dispatch subscription, make sure you <laughs> sign up today. Um, the way I put it is the range of house seats is between 15 and 25 probably. So drop a plumb line at 20 for Republicans, which would take them to a majority of 233 seats and in the Senate, I think it's R51, maybe it's R52, uh, but it's much harder to say because candidate quality matters a lot more. And as you alluded to, there's going to be a lot of ticket splitting and a lot of undervoting uh, in, in uh, Senate races. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me as not at all implausible. I'm not saying it's definitely going to happen, but it's, it's, it's possible, quite possible, that the... F- Balance the control of the Senate will depend on a Georgia runoff again, yet again, again. And um, I think I, I tweeted last night that if it actually happens, the only survivors will be the cockroaches and the owners of Georgia television stations yes. who took their <laughs> immense profits and created floating fortresses. Exactly. Because I mean, it'll be insane if that happened. I mean, just insane how much money will. F- flood in there, right? I mean, yeah, but I mean, so a lot of this all depends on, we can talk about that as it relates to the last week too. What is Donald John Trump going to do? Yeah. So Trump has been, there's been less Trump of late after uh, one of the reasons, by the way, that the summer was so bad for Republicans was Trump. He was everywhere and the Democrats loved it. And they thought the Mar-a-Lago raid or a visit, <laughs> the pop-in uh, was a uh, was a huge help to them, and they probably right in the short term. The more that you can make it into a choice election for Democrats, the better that you can say. Do you want Joe Biden's America, where no one knows what's going on, but you do get ice cream, or do you want Donald Trump's America, which is this very angry, very crazy place? So, the last, you know, I've as I've said before, I always remind Republicans. 
it wasn't that Glenn Youngkin figured out a strategy for dealing with Trump in Virginia. Donald Trump let Glenn Youngkin win. Mm-hmm. At any moment that Donald Trump wanted to, in the final two weeks of the Virginia gubernatorial election last year, he could have flown in to Fairfax County and gone and held a huge rally at Dulles Airport and could have killed, Glenn Youngkin barely squeaked over and he could, he could have really killed Glenn Youngkin and he could have demanded that Youngkin be there. Donald Trump d- thought that he was punishing Ron DeSantis by not inviting Ron DeSantis to go to a <laughs> rally in Florida, but made little Marco, little Marco, Marco Rubio had to go in his stacked yeah. Cuban heel. Uh, and he had to attend and, and be with Trump. And it, it tells you that, you know, look, obviously when you're, have been the president and when you are a national, a, an international celebrity, it's hard to get the, reality checks are hard to come by, but I'm assuming that on some level, Donald Trump knows that he is bad for uh, his current party. And that if he goes out on the trail as he's about to do, it will not be good for them. Um, And that it, he, he's, he is not a net positive in any race right now because there's no, any state where he would add to a candidate that candidate's already way ahead, right? There's no, like going to Texas, Donald Trump going to Texas, where Greg Abbott had a previous commitment. <laughs> uh, when, Greg, when Greg Abbott was just so sorry he couldn't be there with him, Greg Abbott's going to beat better work by 10 points. Yeah. Uh, but both Biden and Trump are going to Pennsylvania. Of course, Biden is bringing Obama with him, which helps uh, because Obama is very popular and very popular in Pennsylvania, certainly. Uh, so that helps. Uh, I, so, uh, you know, uh, Trump will have a lot to say. Obama's actually also very good at stringing these things called sentences together, which in politics actually has a purpose. And between, <laughs> amazingly, between Biden, Fetterman, and Obama, that means only one third of those people are actually really good political speakers. We all learn to talk a little bit more like the former president. These pauses would give us opportunities to think about what we were going to say. So I want to circle back on something. The, the coming home phenomenon, right? Mm-hmm. Which is something that we talk about every election cycle. There's the coming home thing. Is there, how much, how much do we know about that phenomenon? Is that where all of a sudden, like you can see your, your Dennis Kucinich voter, right? In the spring is still in the position as a very left-wing guy to make the perfect, the enemy of the good. Right. Right. And then is the coming home phenomenon where negative polarization basically clicks in and you're like, you start paying more attention to what the other party is doing and saying, and you're like, well, I got to hold my nose and, and, and come back in. Or is there some other rule of thumb about when it happens and why it happens? Well, Jonah, let's talk about sizing coal. Have you ever seen a, uh, and I know you have because of where you live. Uh, have you ever seen a, a locomotive, uh, of coal rolling through the Washington DC area or anywhere in the country. They're I've seen a gu- lot across the country. Not that many in DC. I gotta be honest. There's a, the, there, the, you will see on running on the South side, you'll get to see uh, yeah. going down that way. Most of it, by the way, heading for uh, overseas shipment out, <laughs> uh, out of Norfolk. But so they're called gondola cars Pour the coal in the top. And then there's a Bombay door on the bottom mm-hmm. that opens up, dro- uh, drops the coal out. The way that the coal gets sized is that there are shaking grates underneath that are of different sizes. 
So the right. first grade catches the big lump that's useful for this kind of stuff. This, and then the second grade, and they keep, they keep shaking and they go through. I don't know why I'm moving my hands. This is an audio podcast. Uh, but it, as, as it moves through until you get all the way down to the fines and the particulate that comes all the way through the bottom. Voters are like that, right? The, fir- the first cut are the people we're talking about who are definitely going to vote. They're 100% likely to vote. They voted in every election. That's why the, you know, you know what the most important predictor for likelihood of voting is? Past performance, right? Six or 7% of the electorate every presidential year are new voters. That's like just the replacement value, right? Because some voters are not there anymore. Uh, And so the number of new voters is relatively low, quite low. Um, And the most likely voters are caught in the first screen. They're going to vote no matter what. And then as you move through, you get down to less and less likely voters, people who don't usually vote in primaries, but may vote in a general. And you get all the way down to the 40, well, let's see, in the last election, uh, it was 30, the 34% Mm -hmm. of Americans who were eligible to vote who didn't. We have had extraordinarily high turnout. Um, I have seen turnout models that say that we will have a higher turnout in this midterm election than we did in any presidential election, 1988, 1992, 1996, and 2000. So we're, we're talking about a 60% turnout. These models show. I, don't, I'm, I still don't buy it. I think people have better things to do, but uh, whatever. Uh, that I've seen turnout models that would put this at a, a presidential level turnout for a midterm, and midterms usually run about a third less uh, than a quadrennial. So the part that makes it hard for forecasting, the, hard, the part that makes it hard for predictors is, as you say, the coming home factor, right? So it's one thing to come home, but it's another thing to motivate to go vote when you were not ready to go vote. So if you're a Kucinich voter, um, can you imagine young people are like, who? Yeah, no, actually, honest question, is Kucinich still alive? I hope he is. <laughs> he was a spunky monkey. I always enjoyed his, he would, he went in, uh, he, he, he was a fixture at Fox. Roger knew him from, they're both Ohio guys. So yeah. he, he would, he would be around. And, uh, you know, he said that we should have a TV show, you know, a mutton Jeff thing. Cause he's, you know, you, he, he's, you could fit him in your breast pocket. I could fit him in my breast pocket and ride around. Uh, but I hope, I hope he's still out there. I just looked it up. He is, uh, at least nothing says he's not. He's 76 years old. Oh, there you go. The, the, yeah. Once upon a time, the boy mayor of Cleveland, super progressive, uh, super duper duper progressive, uh, who ran, I'm trying to think what the, the analogy would be. Uh, he was like the Ron, but he was like the Democratic Ron Paul, maybe. Is that a fair? Yeah, except you know, we got to give him some props. He was, until he sold out, pro-life. He was one of the last That's true. very left-wing pro-lifers. Catholic, yeah. Cleveland. Yeah, and then he sure. gave up on it to yeah. run in Republican I mean, Democratic primaries. Um, but so let's take, so we'll take your uh, hardcore progressive voter who is a voter. Right. They're going to quote unquote come home. They say that they're undecided, but they're going to vote. The harder thing to do is to get the person who is an unlikely voter motivated to go to the polls. Now, the Democrats got a huge help in that in Dobbs, right? Uh, they got an enormous boost. I think they didn't understand the nature of the boost though. That was, those were, that's a motivator for democratic voters 
not a persuader. I'm not saying there are no people who were persuaded. I'm not saying there are no voters in America who changed their mind about supporting a Republican because of the Dobbs decision. I'm saying that it's not statistically significant. What is significant are people who would vote Democratic no matter what, but they were they felt compelled to vote. They feel compelled to vote as a consequence. So that turns up the volume and help Democrats catch get it closer to Republicans. The things that are that right now look like they will prevent the kind of successes that the Republicans had in 2010 and 2014 are two things. Number one, there aren't as many seats available to them. They mm-hmm. have the districts that, you know, uh, the, the teens cleaned out a lot of the remaining, uh, the, the great sorting that was of the 1990s. It, some of its last holdouts, Republicans in New England, Democrats in the South and Appalachia and the Intermountain West, those districts went, right? The last, you know, the, uh, you're a Democrat in Utah, you're a Democrat in Tennessee, and you actually see it in this cycle, some of the very last ones uh, are, are going. They're retiring and going away. That's why the Republicans have four or five seats that they're just going to pick up, a couple out of redistricting, and a few because Democrats have said, yeah, we're not, we're not able to do this here anymore. But the Republicans have already gained most of that stuff. So the universe of potential seats is only, the Republicans got picked up 64 seats, 63 seats uh, in 2010. That was possible for, there was a very good year. The Republicans had a bunch of good candidates. They had a lot of money. They had a lot of energy. That's all true. What was the biggest thing? There were a bunch of Democrats playing out of position who had won in the back-to-back good Democratic years of 2006 and 2008. And so the Republicans had a lot more room to play. Biden had reverse coattails. Democrats lost five seats uh, in the 2020 election. So the universe of potential seats is just smaller. uh, And that is why Republicans, it doesn't look like they're going to be able to get the kind of 40, the the 240, 245 kind of numbers uh, that John Boehner was able to enjoy. Two things I want to talk about that I can pick up on. I I can segue masterfully from what you said, but the problem is I can't segue to both of them it's a fork in the road. And contrary to Yogi Berra, when I come to a fork in the road, I can't take it. So um, let's stick with abortion for a second, but remind me, I want to talk to you about Oregon. Okay. So um, from what I've seen of the polls, which I check in with, 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 with not the um, regularity that you do, I would say, I think it's fair to say. I hope. It seems pretty clear that abortion hasn't played out the way a lot of Democrats, or I should say Dobbs hasn't played out the way a lot of Democrats wanted or hoped. And I think I find some of that, I find a lot of it interesting, but I find some of it very forgivable because if you spent 50 years saying how this was this third rail of American politics and there would be a revolution and blah, 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 but then you actually get rid of Roe v. Wade and you're psychologically and ideologically invested in that position, you almost have to predict there'll be a big backlash. Otherwise, you've just been making a fool out of yourself right. for the last, you know, whatever amount of time, right? I mean, I, I think I think those predictions come from a, a sincerely held set of priors about what the political landscape looks like. All of our popular culture has been full of all of this stuff about how, you know, this is, this is you know, so sacrosanct. And, um, and so one of the things I find really interesting to think about is what happens to the 
that sort of elite tier of donor, ideological, influencer, um, leadership of the Democratic Party, if the Democrats get crushed, in, or relatively crushed, right? I mean, it's not going to be the shellacking of, 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 20, of, of, of 63 seats. But um, after they ran on abortion so aggressively, is it, will that drive, I mean, I, I, I don't want to elicit a patented Chris Starwalt, bless your heart here, but will that drive some Democrats towards a more pragmatic view of finding middle ground positions on things? Um, uh, will it, it also, will it bolster Republicans into thinking they can be much more, much more aggressive on the abortion issue because it turns out that it, it did, the dog didn't really hunt for Democrats. I mean, it's, I can't think of something that should have more profound psychological effects on how people think about politics than getting rid of Roe v. Wade and voters and particularly suburban female voters who, according to this latest Wall Street Journal poll, have swung wildly towards Republicans. If it just turns out that that, that abortion is not the vote mover the Democrats always believed it was, that's going to be a, just a very different looking Democratic Party over time, no? I mean, look, the Republicans are going to get wild on abortion after midterms no matter what, because mm -hmm. there's plenty of House speakers and governors across the country who have said, hey, after, okay? After, you can't do it now. Uh, and I think the Kansas result really bolstered the cases of guys like Brian Kemp and Ron DeSantis who were saying, no, 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 no. We have a restrictive abortion law here. We're not popping the cork on this, guys, right now. So the Republicans will definitely do that. Um, and there will be legislation and it will be consequential. Democrats see themselves on this issue as under attack. And they see themselves as freedom fighters who are holding on uh, in the face of the onslaught of the handmaiden's tale, right? Or is it the handmaid? Handmade, yeah, handmade. So they see handmade? them, yeah. But with the, the <laughs> I'm not going to look it up. Keep going. Uh, the the um, terrible book and awful TV show, uh, and they see themselves as fighting against the theocratic overlords of the uh, Catholic intergalist Christian nationalist uh, uh, jackbooted thugs. So mm -hmm. they're not going to change their positions on abortion because they see themselves as fighting. The la it's, this, it's the same reason Democrats can't uh, deal with the trans question better it's because they, it's, it, I guess, flip it around. Shouldn't Republicans be moderating their positions on gun control after Uvalde? No, because mm -hmm. they see it as a rights question and that's how, then they're sincere in their beliefs. But, mm -hmm. but hold, on, hold on, but my point is, is like, the the salience among voters right on abortion isn't the, what the democrats thought it was the salience on guns isn't there either in to democrats like republicans win elections because of their position on guns they don't lose elections because their positions on guns i mean at least in a lot of those places so i'm not sure, I, my point is i don't think the analogy is exactly right well, um, i i just mean that part of the reason that the northeast and the west coast look the way that they do for republicans uh, is abortion and guns, yeah. right? 
And the Republicans in those states can't win primaries if they have different positions. And when they're rights-oriented questions from both sides, it's harder to get people to talk about political pragmatism when people think that this is a, an existential and a big problem that we have in our politics generally is that all these questions are not treated as prudential concerns, but as existential rights-based questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it doesn't matter what happens in the election. It matters what people think happened in the election, right? right? So I've, I've said it many times, but the story of the Democratic Party's 2020 primary just foo uh, was they misinterpreted the results of the 2018 midterms to be that the bold progressives and, and Bernie Sanders' performance in 2016 against Hillary Clinton, the bold progressive democratic socialist moment had arrived. The squad is here. Let's do it. And it was untethered from political reality, which were that Bernie Sanders did well because Democrats didn't like Hillary Clinton and Democrats did well against Republicans in 2018 because nobody liked, not no, but most of the country didn't like Donald Trump. This time around, it will be very easy if Democrats get, take a pasting. So let's say they're at the upper and they lose 25 or more House seats. The Senate goes R53. What will Democrats, who will Democrats blame? Uh, Republicans, <laughs> um, Joe Biden, Joe Biden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll say, yeah. "Oh, Biden, dumb Biden." Uh, the the love of dark Brandon will will quickly fade, and Democrats will say, <laughs> "This old fool, he doesn't know. He doesn't know what the kids want." And they'll they'll turn on Biden. Um, run run it the other way. If Republicans disappoint, if they only get fifteen or fewer seats in the House. And the Senate stays Democratic. Who are the Republicans going to blame? Mitch McConnell. No, they will blame. They will blame El Trumpo. Uh, and publicly, you think? Well, here Donald Trump's twenty twenty four chances hinge, not hinge, but but rely substantially on Republicans coming out of this cycle and saying, you know, they said that all of Trump's picks were terrible, but look, Herschel Walker won, Mehmet Oz won, J.D. Vance won, surprise in Arizona. They said it couldn't be done, and he did it. And the SNR, the strange new respect for Donald, and you know where you'll read it, right? You'll read it in Politico, and you'll read it in the Washington Post, too. They'll mm-hmm. say, you know, Donald, you know, the strange savvy of Donald Trump's uh, political picks. And it won't, Republicans won't say, well, this was just a good year. As uh, Roger Ailes used to say about primetime hosts when they would threaten to quit or something, he would say, we could put a test pattern on at seven o'clock and we'd still beat the competition. Okay, so settle down. <laughs> if, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, the weirdo in Arizona. Blake, if Blake Masters is elected to the United States Senate, it will not be because Donald Trump is a savvy player. It will be because it's just a really good Republican year and mm-hmm. then people are fed up with the Democrats. So the, the inputs matter less than what the perception is. And of course there will also be exit polling, which is trash, uh, <laughs> tra- <laughs> trash exit polling. Uh, people say, well, uh, so-and-so people say, you know, 77% of people said that they were this way about abortion or that way about abortion. And it'll all, it'll all be a mess. And the narrative will harden quickly, right? What happened in this election? A month from now, 
it will be considered old hat, whatever the, the received wisdom. And the, the funny thing is, for all of their complaining about the mainstream media, the Republicans will buy it too, right? Whatever, mm-hmm. but whatever that ossified chunk of this is what happened is, and then that will shape the Republican and Democratic 2024 nominating contests. Yeah, so strange things are happening in Oregon, right? Always. And always. always. And also Washington State to a certain extent. And I, I, I can do the, the general punditry thing. If you, have, if you have insights and all that, that's great. It's in, so I, shortly before I tuned out for a while, um, I'd listened to this 538 podcast about Oregon or a big chunk of it. And they got into a big fight about Oregon. Um, and it seemed to me I had, it's been, I've been noodling it ever since. If one of the better indicators of whether or not your Republican is increasingly, whether you are a member of the white working class or live in rural, uh, largely white areas, um, it seems to me it's time for Oregon to start moving purple, right? Um, and maybe the the key linchpin here is, because this is a point that you were the first to hammer home with me years ago, was that any state that has a brain drain uh, or any state that's gaining young college-educated people moves blue, any state that's losing them moves red. And the only question is time. Um, and maybe one of the catalytic factors here has to be that blue urban politics have to so ruin a city that it either, uh, it either uh, cuts off the importation of young college kids or hastens the flight of slightly older college educated young people in their thirties and forties, you know, starting a family kind of thing and moves them, if not out of the state entirely and out of the city and into the suburbs. And then they start going the other way. Also, I just know this from having had family who lived and worked in Oregon. Oregon kind of because of stupid zoning stuff. Yeah. Portland doesn't really have suburbs, which is right there in Washington weird. State. Yeah, 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 for sure. Like, in fact, I have a brother and sister-in-law who live in the Portland suburbs in Washington State. In and Vancouver, that, and Washington. by the way, that district is where that battle is being fought out. That Washington district, which is a a, a dog a dog fight uh, yeah. across the border is one of the key races for the control of the house this year. So absolutely. So Oregon, I believe last time I looked is like 86% white and two or 3% black. And then the rest is Asian or mixed and that kind of thing. And then Washington state is in the mid high seventies white and, and slightly more black people, but not a lot more black people. Should we be looking, I mean, you've been talking for a long time about how Minnesota is going to start turning red and how Wisconsin is part of this trend. Um, how much of a predictor is actually being, how much, how much of a predictor is race to all of this? And conversely, is it possible that because those states don't have high proportions of minorities, there's sort of a Nordic left-wing Scandinavian model effect that you get yeah. when you have a lot of white people and no, and no minorities to create ethnic conflict or whatever. Culture, cultural populism is not uh, necessarily racially driven, uh, but having decently large minority populations, mm-hmm. there's a strong correlation, right? Right. Look, Vermont is the most democratic state in the union. And man, it is white, baby. It mm-hmm. is like white. Uh, right. It smells like damp wool. I mean, come on, white. So the... Oregon and 
Washington were Republican states. Right. Because the eastern parts of those states are really, really, really Republican, right? Yes. They're like sure. Idaho Republican. They're yeah. for real. Um, out there beyond the Cascades, it is that way. Um, part of the reason that the Pacific Northwest is so democratic is the same reason of the Northeast being so democratic, which is a lot of college going, educated, you know, the businesses that are there. Boston is, uh, I forget what I, I used to know, but Boston is the way that it is used to be the way that it was politically because of large numbers of Italian and Irish uh, mm-hmm. working class uh, immigrants and the children and grandchildren of immigrants. Boston is the way it is now because it's knowledge workers and it's uh, overeducated, it's overeducated people, right? Because right. The, the, the reason you go to Boston, the reason you go to Seattle, the reason that you go to Portland, I don't know why you go to Portland. Uh, it is beautiful, uh, is, is not the same reason that you might be going to Atlanta or the same reason you might be going to Jacksonville or the same reason you might be going to Dallas, right? It's the industries that are there and the emphasis that are there probably has some effect in this. And then there's also the cultural folkway, right? When people move, they do end up reflecting the places that they go to. Um, It's not the, the, the myth in Texas is, Oh, these Californians have come to Texas, and the reason Texas is getting so liberal is because, and it's like, no, Austin's always been fruity, right? Austin's mm-hmm. always been weird, and that that's that's their name, that's what they're about. Uh, and Texas is not Republican in the same way that Oklahoma or West Virginia or Wyoming is Republican. It's not very elastic. Uh, it's a consistent five or six points Republican, uh, but it's not outrageously Republican. People do change to reflect the places that they go. This Oregon race is not a reflection. You know how Republicans got Obamacare wrong? Because they mm-hmm. always saw the, the numbers. They said, well, it's unpopular. It's like, yeah, but you have to ask the next question. Why is it unpopular? And for 40% of the country, it's unpopular because it's liberal. For right. 30% of the country, it's unpopular because it's not liberal enough. So right. when, you went to, when the Republicans went to repeal it, they were like, you don't want it repealed? It's like, no, dummies. You weren't, you weren't looking at the next question. And... Oregon's gubernatorial race is like that. Kate uh, Brown, Kate Brown was not a super, she came in under straightened circumstances, not a super popular governor, certainly not with the Eastern Oregonians. Uh, and to the extent that there are, look, the story of crime and urban decay on the West Coast, look at the LA mayor's race. Uh, look at the recall of the prosecutor and the uh, uh, Board of Education members in San Francisco. There's a lot of stories on the West Coast where people have reached the limit. Uh, John Fund's line about, uh, what did he say? Uh, if only fascists will enforce immigration laws, eventually people will elect fa- fascists to do that. Um, that's true about crime too. People will, eventually even the most liberal people will throw their hands up and say, I don't care. Give me Rudy Giuliani, right? It just can't, it just can't go on this way. So we've got to do something else. There is a breaking point. Uh, and we see a lot of that. Oregon's gubernatorial race is, as I said at our election watch event, uh, <laughs> and uh, this is one of those things at AEI, I say things and I'm like, I'm going to get fired. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see whether I'm going to get fired. Well, but we'll find out. We're, 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 I'm, I'm a day-to-day basis. But this woman, uh, Johnson, who is the third party candidate, 
is I said, looks like she could be from no other state, right? She, you're like, <laughs> so Birkenstocks and socks, like, you know, that her Subaru, that, you know, that her mix, that her golden mix is in the backseat of the Subaru that is parked behind the venue where she's doing the event. A hundred percent. The only question is whether she has one of those tricked out Subarus that uses converted uh, grease yes, she's, for, she, for she, diesel. She's driving <laughs> around behind Jack in the Boxes, Jack's in the Box, <laughs> to collect their unused, their, their uh, remaindered fryer oil uh, to run her modified Subaru. So the votes for her are not tough on crime votes. She's a Democratic mm. spoiler, pure and, pure and simple. And the... I don't think Patty Murray's in trouble in Washington state. I think that's a barrage. Um, now, obviously I could totally be wrong. That's again, it's a weird year. It's an unsettled year, but I I'm very skeptical of that. I certainly think that Drazen, 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 the Republican in Oregon could win, but if she wins, it w- will be because Johnson has siphoned off 15 points of democratic vote mm-hmm. and it won't be for some other reason. Right. Okay. So that's fine on the punditry. Okay. But like, and I've never been a, unless you want recipes. No, no, I I haven't, I've never been a huge demography is destiny guy. Right. But you know, demography illuminates trends, right. You know, and trends can be thwarted by, uh, by other things. Right. Like, I I think we both agree in broad brushstrokes that if you had a, if, if, if you had a few tough democratic mayors in this country who could get that special mix of knowing how to fight crime and protecting property values and being a little Giuliani esque while at the same time couching it in progressive language about how, you communities know, and community and safety and, for yeah. the, the most vulnerable and all of which I think is actually true. Right. You know, to one extent or another, um, I think Democrats could be the majority party indefinitely throughout, yeah. you know, like, cause it, it, it seems to me it's the incentive structure within the parties is set up to insist on being a minority party. We've talked about this a million times when the, in the incentive, the, the, the incentive climate outside the parties is to actually do the things that would help America in a more constructive way. It's just that you can't get enough people in the room to help you do that. Right. And so you get these, crazy progressive local politicians who then become national politicians and, and the animal spirits within the parties are why we can't have nice things. Um, that said, you know, Wisconsin has cities and for a long time it was a reliable democratic place. The cities got bad. Lots of people, you had a lot of white flight to suburbs. Uh, Minnesota has cities. Cities got, have problems. Um, Minnesota has one city, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. City and a half. You know, but um, we, love uh, we love you, St. Paul. And I mean, you look at New York State. You know, it, it takes a it, it takes a it takes a rich, complicated list of factors. But Kathy Hochul happens to be terrible. Woof. And, and Lee, Zeldin, Lee Zeldin is relentless. That yeah. guy is a absolutely indefatigable candidate. He is amazing. And um. And New York State, you know, is not supposed to go Republican, but you could see it go Republican um, this time around. And then you, you know, whenever you have those kinds of changes, you you create these windows of opportunity where the demographic trends 
can be accelerated, right? Donald Trump was one of these fluke wins and the demographic trends that were already going on, he accelerated dramatically. Um, you know, the gutting of the FDR coalition was going on for 30, 40 years, 50 years. Um, the migration of college educated, you know, suburbanites was, was a trickle until Trump. And then it became more than a trickle. Uh, and so anyway, it seems to me that we could hit tipping points in a lot of these states that we take for granted. I mean, California is a tougher road to hoe, but, um, and it's also, but it's also demographically very, very, very different than Oregon and Washington um, or, or even New York state. And so anyway, I just, how much of the Democrat, the de- demographic trends are just waiting for the right opportunity to express themselves in ways that you could actually see some of these blue states turning purple. Well, first let me say, I think that California is going to be more competitive sooner than most people think. I think that the, uh, nonpartisan primary will help um, and I think you, I think California may become a one party state with two parties within it. Uh, and I think Lan Hee Chen's six, uh, success there this cycle. Look, I, I, I think we have watched the Democratic Party demand too much of too many voter groups. And the question, the, the question after the 2016 election was, can Republicans uh, make room for the white working class voters that had been Bill Clinton voters whose parents were part of FDR. Some of them were part of FDR's coalition, but whose parents and grandparents were part of FDR's coalition. And guess what? Boy, can they, they (laughs) really can. The Republicans have had no trouble shifting leftward on economic issues and rightward on cultural issues quick uh, with, with barely a pause. The question for Democrats is, can they absorb the college-educated suburbanites who used to be the bulwark of the Republican Party, right? They were the ones, they were the, so, you know, you can think about the FDR coalition, but also think about the Eisenhower coalition, right? Uh, Non-white voters and affluent suburbanites were Dwight Eisenhower's coalition. That's what made him, uh, that, that was his baseline. So the things that you have to think about are, so I'm gonna read to you the top 10 states for educational attainment. Uh, DC, number one, doesn't count. Fake, fake, rigged, rigged. Uh, this is among, mass- among, among all adults? Uh, over 25. You, you only start calculating college after 25. Okay. So these are with a college degree. Massachusetts, Vermont, Colorado, New Jersey, Maryland, Connecticut, Virginia, New Hampshire, New York, and Washington State. Then you get to Minnesota, Illinois, Utah. Okay, so that's those are the most educated states. Here are the whitest states, and these are without, these are white alone, not white Hispanic. Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, West Virginia, Wyoming, Idaho, Utah, Iowa, Montana, and Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Now, Nebraska has a fairly high college going rate among these states, but you can cross-reference educational attainment here and whiteness, and you will see that the, the, that's, that is, tends to be the deciding factor. Uh, Washington and Oregon have a lot of people who went to college. Why is Vermont very democratic? It's a very well-educated state, um, and they have a long tradition of liberalism. If you come from the upper Midwest, if you come from Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, 
You come from the I-70 corridor, Pennsylvania and Ohio. You are from a swing state. You're from a place where there was, there, there's churn, right? We could have told people who was going to win a presidential election uh, prior to 2016. If you told us, tell us how six counties, three in Ohio and three in Florida are going to vote, we can tell you how it's going to be because the rest of the states were pretty static. Mm-hmm. But they were accustomed to, their, they, there was political play. You reach a certain point where you tip over and the culture is what it is. Uh, I think that I think that probably explains a lot of it. Whiteness is insufficient to explain um, partisanship, education, uh, and race help. Then you can start talking about religious observance, what percentage of the people in a place uh, are religious, and then we can talk about what percentage of Roman Catholic versus this. So I think a little, I, I, do, I don't see Oregon and Washington becoming more Republican because uh, they've been white the whole time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, California, interestingly, because of the, the, the failures in California, the frustrations of the people there, um, I think California is a lot more like France. The weather's really good. The wine and food and culture are delightful and people can put up with an awful lot uh, in those places, but their, their limits do get reached and I think we're watching them be reached there now. All right, so let's just switch gears here. Um, and, you know, lest anyone think I was offering the pundit equivalent of racial essentialism or any of that kind of no, stuff. No, 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 no. I wasn't doing that. But... Uh, it seems to me, though, I don't know why you just put uh, a Der Sturmer article in the chat here. I think that <laughs> seems out of character, Jonah. I don't know. Um, it seems so like, uh, you know, uh, my, I was talking to my wife about this, you know, and, and, and she had a client that she was talking to. My wife goes writes books and she had a client where she was saying, you know, uh, look, you can do one of two things. You can write a book that is like politically of the moment that will make you popular with the sort of animal spirits of the Trump party. Or you can write a book that your grandkids will be, you'll be proud that your grandkids can read. Right. And, and of course politicians always say to these kinds of questions. And my wife has been saying this kind of thing for years. You know, you can write a very policy oriented analytical work, or you can write a very sort of like popular kind of every man kind of thing. And they always politicians say both. I don't want to do both. Right. And the, that's the whole point is that you can't do both. But anyway, unless you, unless you write a book like young guns and then you've done it all, then you have it all. There you go. Uh, um, and the beauty of that is it was the, you know, uh, I am no Trinitarian, but uh, <laughs> the fact that you had three different personalities covering three different kinds of, no, it's, it is, that book is, is what it was. And yes, my wife wrote it. So, uh, so uh, anyway, um, I was saying to my wife this morning, the fair Jessica, that it seems to me that if just days after uh, an 82-year-old man is sma- has his skull cracked with a hammer by yeah. a crazy person, if you are on the hustings running for a public office making jokes about it... Um, Who did that? Carrie Lake. Well, uh, um, Jeez you Louise. Have, you have affirmatively sided with the, I don't give a crap if my grandparents, my grandkids ever hear anything about this. Right. You know, um, you have, you've picked a lane to be a bad person. Jeez. And 
I know you try to stay away from Twitter. Uh, I don't just try, brother. I don't just try. (laughs) The number of people who have said bat guano crazy things about all of this based upon very little information. I mean, like, you know, Dinesh is a write-off, all that kind of stuff. I particularly like Charlie Kirk. He was beaten by a mule is the truth. The truth is. (laughs) Uh, Charlie Kirk, uh, who I, I, uh, you know, uh, words can't, you know, I I love this thing about how uh, coming up with phrases that sound like compliments, but aren't. Um, you know, the, the classic was, you know, with Ted Cruz, the Republican party finally has a leadership it deserves. Amen. Exactly. I was going to say about, about Charlie Kirk, words cannot express my level of respect for Charlie Kirk. Yeah, exactly. But, quite so. Quite so. <laughs> um, he's, he asked all his listeners to find, to raise money, to, to post bail. No, for this he guy. did not. Yes. So that we could ask him the questions about what really happened. Uh, and, bleh. um, bleh. anyway, it seems to me. A lot of my friends on the right who are sane, but are still a little more caught up in the partisanship stuff than I am, um, make absolutely correct points that there are double standards and all of this kind of stuff. Right? Like what, that like what's the well? In, in terms of the way Democrats respond to violence against Republicans, is the way the media responds to it is is de minimis. You know, oh, come on. you know what? You know what? I'm sick of it. I'm sick. You know why I'm sick of it? Because they can go get whatever kind of freaking news that they want. Go, you don't, if Fox is too mainstream for you, you can go turn on One America or you can go watch Newsmax. You can watch uh, Russia Today. Yeah, you you got it. Like, (laughs) you don't have to. And the thing is, they're not watching it, right? Mm -hmm. They aren't. And we, I wrote a whole book. Broke, uh, let me tell you, Troy, you right now. In my book, Broken <laughs> News, How the Media Rage Machine uh, Divides America and How to Fight Back, um, national bestseller, you can look and see how tall the stacks are part of, of partisanship around these networks. So I, I am over the argument about, well, see, the mainstream news did this. The New York Times did that. How, yeah. many, how many conservatives read the New York Times? It's time to be specific about this. We live in a granular media era and it's just hogwash. And the permission structures that Republicans create for themselves by this boogeyman about the mainstream press, that it's sort of like the Republican establishment. Well, you know, these establishment Republicans, who? Yeah, no, exactly. Who? Mitch McConnell is it. Right. He's got one, <laughs> we've got one 80-year-old guy holding on to the mast of a ship being thrown around in the sea. And they're like, oh, the powerful Republican establishment. Uh, I think the Republican establishment is a bunch of MAGA crazy people. I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that the leader of the party is. So, ugh. Yeah, so like, for some reason, I feel like in the 1970s, the whole concept of the one man band hit yes. its its high watermark. Um, and I, maybe it was in Guinness Book of World Records when there was that picture with I, the guy yeah, with yeah. the glockenspiel and the flute and the drum and the this he and that. He can do it all. That is Mitch McConnell as yes. the establishment, right? Exactly. <laughs> like is, um, John, John Thune is over there handing him a tambourine every once in a while, but <laughs> it's lonesome work. Um, no, but my, my, my point is, look, I, I, I agree with you. My my only point was saying that there are at the margin, like, you know, Lee Zeldin had some political violence around him. Some guy tried to stab him with a keychain thing that people wow. are calling. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like uh, there was the Kavanaugh thing. 
There the is guy, a guy tried to murder the players of the Republican congressional baseball team. That's right. There was the, that, but this is my point, right? Is that, that this is not a problem. Like, I, I was, you know, Chuck Todd's a friend, but like, I was very disappointed with how he handled this on meet the press on Sunday because he was determined to make all the guests just basically say this was Trump's fault. Oh, and, um, I think Trump has more than his fair share of blame for all of this, but I yeah, don't know sure. that this Krista Pape guy was uh, a Trumpy in any way. And maybe by lending more Elon and the Esprit Accord to the ranks of QAnon, uh, that enticed this guy into it in ways that, but, but for Trump, he wouldn't have been. But the simple fact is, is that there's been a lot of political violence going back for a very long time. And, and, it's, get, and it's gotten worse, right? And it's gotten worse. And this idea that somehow, if it doesn't fit your specific political narrative, that uh, it doesn't matter or we have to say, oh, that was really about something else, is kind of crazy. And that this is my friend. So getting to your media criticism point, it's not just that they don't read the New York Times. I've, I've now caught it several times on various Fox shows and on Twitter where... People say, well, what did Democrats say when Scalise was shot? And it turns out that, you know, like Democrats condemned it wholeheartedly. Yeah. They didn't plead guilty that their rhetoric helped. Right. Bernie Sanders did not come out and say, that was me. I yeah, did that. right. But he did go to the Senate floor and say he condemned it in all and yeah. in the strongest possible terms and all that kind of stuff. It seems to me that in a democracy, if you can't just simply say it is wrong and I condemn it when crazy people smash 82-year-old dudes in the head with a hammer, then you're doing it wrong. And you don't have to be clever about it. You just, it's like, it's like the, it's, it's literally the least anyone can do. Right. Is just say, this is bad. I'm sorry it happened. I condemn who did it. We all need to use our words, not our hammers. And the fact that so many people can't do it and a lot of sort of very online trollish people from the MAGA right are borderline either celebrating it or straight up saying they don't care. That worries me because that, I mean, the phrase permission structure has gotten a lot of use on this podcast over the years, probably too much. I'm 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 the cardinal offender. I'm a chief offender in this. I don't know. I'm pretty bad about it too. Um, although, I, just because I have to get it out there, I actually wrote it down here while you were talking much earlier about the coal sifting thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said less likely voters, and you should have said fewer likely voters. I just want oh, to say so. that. So. So. But anyway, quite like we give so. people it, it, when 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 society doesn't have a sort of homogenous monolithic response condemning. Just completely unacceptable violence. Right. So if the if the Haymarket bombing takes place today, right? If, right. An, if anarchists and communists and radicals blow up uh, a and, radical faction of up with people, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, detonates a bomb uh, and kill. I forget how many were killed in the Haymarket bombing, but it was a lot. Yeah. Uh, and if that happened today, what would the response be like? And I think we know, right? The the response would be, you know. It entirely depends who the perpetrators were and who the victims were. Exactly, because in that case, the perpetrators would be progressives, radicals, Mm -hmm. and the victims would be people engaged in commerce. 
Right. And it would be, it would, it, this is your fault. This is what you did. Look at what you, look at what you made these people do. I think the ghoulishness in the nationalist right is an incredible turnoff to voters. Mm-hmm. I think the delight in suffering that these people evince and the joy of hatred. I remember I was at Fox and a guy wrote a book, a guy who worked at Fox wrote a book that was called The Joy of Hate. And I was like, we may be on the wrong, wrong path here, fellas. We may, <laughs> we may not be going in the right direction. Maybe we ought to check the map and see if the joy of hate would be a problem. Um, because hatred does feel good, right? Um, because you feel justified in it. And you're allowed to hate Nancy Pelosi because she's evil. Look what she did. Look at what she did. And yeah, you know, whatever. And they did. And of course, you then create the PS uh, for yourself because you say, well, and they didn't say anything when Steve Scalise was almost killed. And you're like, well, actually, they did. It's more complicated than that. And you should probably think that through. No, you're just a whatever. And this is why I don't listen to what partisans have to say. Mm-hmm. The only time I listen to partisans is when they are disclosing against interest. Not the only time. But basically, the only time I really pay attention is when they are disclosing against interest. When they say, look, I should say here, like, I would really sit up and pay attention to a Republican who said, it, how about this? If, if um, Ron DeSantis today said, you know, I think uh, I have been guilty of using the kind of rhetoric that creates a climate where mentally unwell people uh, may be pushed into things. And I today, tell you that I am going to lower the temperature on what I'm saying. I would really take note of that. Um, But what we get instead is, and it's the really sick thing, whenever there's a mass shooting or there's political violence, you're just waiting to see which side is going to blame the other side, which which side is going to say, oh, ah, we got it. He was a Muslim. Uh, He was a white nationalist. He was a this, he was a that. And all of that neglects the common humanity right? We have a common humanity problem. We have a serious love deficiency in America. And my message as I've been out promoting this book and I've been doing all my pre-election stuff has been, you know, Ronald Reagan's farewell address. He talks about you can't love America unless you love Americans Mm -hmm. because it's just America is just full of them. (laughs) And if you say you love America, you have to love Americans. So we owe something to each other out of filial love, right? Out of brotherly and sisterly love, we owe each other something because a republic, and I know you uh, are wisely always caution against government as family because mm-hmm. uh, it functions different ways, but a republic is like a family in the sense that it is a decision among its participants, right? Mm-hmm. The people who are in it, we have a republic because we say we are one. Uh, the constitution has no army of its own. Uh, no one is compelling. No one compels us to be in this together. Uh, we this is a voluntary act, and therefore necessitates love. And the lack of filial patriotic love that I and by the way, part of the problem with nationalism over patriotism is it's it is unloving. It's not entirely unloving, but it is less loving. And we really have this love gap. We really have this love deficiency. And it is the only thing that is really going to get us out of this jam. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know if you listened to it, but I did this podcast with um, Yuval. Yes. Um, and you, you think I skipped my boss on your podcast? <laughs> and uh, I'll get to it later after I finish every episode of Fly on the Wall. Um, and it was, uh, you know, this point that he makes, which I think 
it's something that you and I have talked about in different ways, but it, it uh, for a while now, but he got, it kind of encapsulates the essential problem is we've convinced ourselves, the partisans have convinced themselves that in the next election, they get to wipe out the other party. That's right. Like, that that the, all the problems this country has is the existence of the other people. And the problem is, and I know this is a lesson you've learned only too well, is that life is more like the office, Christmas, elections are more like the office Christmas party, right? Where like, sure, you can get sauced and start Xeroxing your butt while doing a Hoboken squat cobbler, um, but on the Monday, pot, the, yeah, the, the, the repair bill from that peach cobbler is going to be a real situation. And also on Monday, you're going to see everybody, right? Mm-hmm. It's like one thing to like, um, do your big, uh, set fire to all your relationships, masterful exit, right? Where you, 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 you say, screw you to everybody and you flip everybody the bird and you tell them what you really think. And then you walk out. It's another thing when you have to come back the next day and clean out your desk and you see everybody. And our politics works these days as if you're never going to have to work with all these people. So like at at a more pragmatic level, I mean, I'm with you on the love thing, but uh, on a more pragmatic level, level, as a matter of just simple politics, there's still going to be Democrats on Monday. There's still going to be Republicans on Monday. So maybe figure out a way to actually make the problems the problems rather than the people the problems. And That's right. there's just no incentive for that anywhere in our politics, you know, with the exception of these strange, you know, monastic redoubts like, you know, the American Enterprise Institute and the Dispatch. Our, our, our monasticism, I think, you, you may be overstating our monasticism a little bit. It's uh, not personally monastic, <laughs> monastic you know, but uh, our primary system is the mother of all perverse incentives in politics. We must have primary reform. Yeah. We must have primary reform. I think that ranked choice voting for primaries is is a good and necessary thing now. Uh, And I also think, by the way, in one-party states, so look at Alaska. What did Alaska get out of its uh, ranked choice voting for the, for uh, not Ted Stevens, why am I drawing a blank on his name? He was congressman from... The, from the from the Bronze Age. Um, oh, Ted. Um, no, not Ted. Um, anyway. No, not Ted. The, oh, Jesus. You're, the, guy, the guy who pulled a knife on Boehner. Uh, and yeah, the, but yeah, they yeah. were cool afterward. Uh, Don Young. Don, Don Young, Young. Don Young. Don Young. Um, Mary Patola uh, is the name of the Democrat. What kind of Democrat did they elect uh, in Alaska? A moderate, friendly Democrat who talked about her friendship with Sarah Palin and ran a, a nice campaign, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because she just knew that that split Republican vote, she had to be attractive to uh, the voters uh, for Begich and mm-hmm. had to draw those voters. So you get a more moderate member of Congress than you would have otherwise. Um, the California's open primary. I'm in one for one party states, uh, nonpartisan primary, Pretty appealing, right? Mm -hmm. Because it creates different incentives. But we cannot continue to have a system. Our 45-year experiment with primaries has been a disaster because here's what it, here's what it, I will now verbify a word, I'm sorry, incents people to Mm -hmm. do is to say the other people are not wrong, they are evil, and I will destroy them. If you send me to Washington, think about all the people 
who run are running for Congress this year talking about how much they hate Congress. I hate it. It's the worst. It, I, when I get there, I won't even talk to them, right? <laughs> when I get there, I'll, I'll flip my desk over uh, and uh, do a Hoboken cobbler right there. That's what I think of the United States Congress. And then they get there, and then what are they going to do? They're going to go on the cable news outlet and the social media of, of their party, and they're going to get on there, and they're going to say how much of a dump it is and how much they hate it and how bad the other people are. So if I run in primaries talking about that the devil himself is in the other party, how will I then say, and I'm proud to announce that I have co-sponsored legislation with the devil uh, to increase funding for wastewater treatment plants in small right. communities in our great state. You can't do it. And it is an insane way for these parties to choose their candidates. I wish most of all that, we, the, that these parties would leave us alone and choose their own nominee. I don't care how they choose them. Feats of strength, uh, a longest middle toe, doesn't matter to me how they choose them. I wish they would quit holding these dumb elections. But if they are going to continue to hold these dumb elections and subject us all to their primaries, I wish they would find a way to do it that would create some better incentives. I am with you there. And uh, we've gone a little long. And obviously, we'll be returning all of these themes Again and again. I, Forever. I, yes, exactly. I want to leave you with, and maybe we can actually do a little outro music uh, from it. Uh, John Bedores last night sent me an Instagram post, not of his own, but that he had found. I found the video that, the same video on YouTube. We're going to put it in the show notes. Are I you on I'd, Instagram before you, before you take off here? Are you on Instagram? Is there a... No, I'm not. But I told Pod last night. Come on I was over, like, baby. I was like, what does it say about me that, that this video is the first it, it may be the decisive factor in me getting on Instagram and so the video I I, I defecate to, to you negatory is the Paul Lind Hollywood oh, Halloween baby. special oh baby <laughs> where again just bear with me if you need a moment oh. uh, where they it's where they do the dance number disco baby where Pinky Tuscadero Get it. is dancing. Pinky Tuscadero, uh, people of our age know, was... Um, uh, Not Fonzie's of, girlfriend. No, but sort of like Fonzie's female, female equivalent. Though I believe they were accidentally married once yeah. as a and joke. And I think they had a romantic past that they alluded to. Well, but there was Fonzie. A, what do you want? A, right. So there was a certain amount of respect between them. And yes. she was a, a Cayente redhead. Um, <laughs> who was also into uh, demolition derby stuff. Accurate. Um, uh, and then she got somehow waylaid. So uh, Fonzie had to step in to defeat the Malachi brothers. Alone. No, no, no. She he was he was Pinky Tuscadero's partner, I believe. Yes, I, I believe that's correct. That's right. Anyway, but that's not that, we're we're not even getting into the we're deep the in the arcana of happy days at this yeah, point. So yes, Pinky Tuscadero's just doing a little you know little dance thing on the disco floor in the studio, and Paul Lind sidles over, doing his best to exude his best approximation of heterosexuality, and. Uh, does this flirty thing with her about how he's been watching her across the dance floor. And she says, I've been watching you watch me. And he's like, I bet I've had a better time. I've been watching you, Pinky. Oh yeah, I've been watching you watching me talk, Paul. I bet I'm having a better time than you are. Oh yeah? 
Oh no. And then he asked her to teach her how to do disco, uh, the disco dancing. And, um, and they played disco baby and the cameos in this. I don't think, I really don't think you're prepared for who else is in this thing. There is Tim Conway. Dorf. Florence Henderson. Get it. Uh, Billy Barty. Oh my gosh. Uh, uh, quite a, uh, what's uh, Tim Conway. I said Tim Conway. Uh, and Kiss. Kiss was everywhere. Kiss, people, young people cannot understand. The omnipresence of Kiss was really something else. Uh, circa 1982, Kiss was everywhere. Well, our own guy, Denton, uh, is an insane Kiss fan. Um, That's so wrong. Isn't that odd? Yes. Isn't that just disturbing? Further, and, uh, further evidence that he is a fake Briton and, and I, potentially a, a Russian plant. And I don't know. So he wrote a big piece about going to a Kiss convention for the Dispatch a couple months <laughs> ago. And then I read that. I read that. He asked me if it the like last week he was gone for a while and he he had asked me long in advance if it was okay he took the time off I said sure and I was like but why and he says if I told you you might not let me go and I said tell me anyway and he said well what if I told you I'm actually going to go on one of those kiss cruises and I don't know if that's actually what he did I haven't found out yet but it just it's it's that's a whole other strange thing. Anyway, I we will put it in the show notes. It's amazing. It is um it is a special it is a special kind of joy and maybe um I will start doing even more dog content Come on, on Instagram. Over to Instagram. It's funny. It is. I mean, funny. Now that Elon Musk is going to start charging me for my blue check mark, um uh maybe I should, you know, get out while the getting's good. Um <laughs> but anyway, uh I, I got nothing. I know I didn't even introduce you to listeners because I just assume everybody knows who you are, but uh, they have a title on the show. And yeah, man. it's fine. It's whatever. And, and really, you know, if someone doesn't know who you are, that's really their problem, not your problem. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so brother Starwalt, thank you uh, for coming on and indulging me in uh, uh, holding my hand as I get back into normal podcasting. And um, um, it's always a pleasure. Makes me happy to see your smiling face. Uh, and thanks for having me. Okay, so Brother Starwalt has left the studio. Um, my apologies if I seem more checked out or less uh, on my game, but I'm a little more checked out and less on my game than I normally am. And um, uh, what else is going on? Um, I told you I was going to do a bunch of CNN stuff next week from New York, so you can look out for that. We are going to keep our bases covered on podcasting, um, I was originally supposed to be gone on a trip with my wife, uh, with the fair Jessica this week. Um, um, but instead I'm doing this. So Sarah did, Sarah Isger was supposed to guest host for me both times. She did book one show that she really wanted to do and I'm happy to have her do it. So she will be guest hosting for me at some point, either one day this week or early next week, because I want to put some shows in the can since I'm doing this stuff from CNN in New York in the mornings, it's a little difficult to make sure um, I'm on the podcast schedule. So that's just a little housekeeping stuff. Um, and uh, in the interregnum, while, while Starwalt left the studio, um, I checked with Guy. And in fact, I was correct. Guy was on a Kiss cruise. 
Um, if there are any listeners out there who were also on this cruise, uh, there are, I don't want to, I don't want to incentivize people to go to Photoshop or anything like that. But if you have pictures that would be amusing in any context uh, from that cruise, please contact me directly. Do not go through Guy because uh, he will intervene and, and prevent the best stuff from getting to me. So please, it's Jonah at the dispatch.com. Send it my way. Uh, um, I will make it worth your while somehow. And um, um, I did ask Guy if he, you know, because basically the only way he can say, like, right, basically right now if I fire him, he's deported. So, uh, which is fantastic. Um, it's, it's like basically making him dance over the tiger pit, you know, and all I have to do is say, I don't like this. And the door opens and he falls through. Um, and he goes back to the, to the, you know, beyond the wall in, in England. And, uh, which, you know, I think England is a perfectly civilized place, but, but guy thinks it's, um, sort of, you know, the land of Sauron or something anyway. So, uh, but if you can land a bride, um, or a groom, laws change, uh, he could then become, he could stay here, um, that way. And then he could tell me what he really thinks of me and, uh, tell me to take this job and shove it. And, uh, but until then, so I asked him whether he, he landed, a, landed someone on the cruise and he said, alas, no, um, which is tragic, but ladies, American citizen, ladies, he's available. Uh, and, um, other than that, uh, we'll, we'll hear more about that. We will come back to this in some way, shape or form. Uh, cause I think that, uh, a kiss cruise is one of those things that actually should not exist in this space time continuum. And, um, it is basically like, um, I don't know, a, a murder. She wrote cruise. Uh, it's just something that shouldn't exist and there shouldn't be a market for it. Like there's some things like I, I like markets. Everyone knows that, but there's, there should be no market demand for some of these things. And, um, and, that's not entirely fair. People besotted by nostalgia who grew up listening to Kiss, that's fine. But like young 20 somethings from England should have no desire to do anything like this. Um, and uh, anyway, we will come back to this. I am sure. In the meantime, um, uh, again, thanks everybody for their consideration and their condolences and their compassion and everything else. It's uh it's been a rough time. I'm sure I'll get into some of it again, um, down the road, but I am trying to get back to as normal as possible, even as I still have to deal with a bunch of stuff. So, uh, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs> Good enough.